Daniel Hart. Give me some. Give me some. Give me some song. Well, the only song I'm singing tonight is about the flamingos that seem to be all over this apartment. Yeah, it's Meg's thing now. Yeah. <laughs> she, she, I don't know. It's like girls pick a lane on some animals sometimes, and Meg went fl- with flamingo. And I'm gonna be honest, I have no interior decorating or fashion sense. Left to my own devices, this apartment would have no decorations. It would have a ton of books, but they wouldn't even be on shelves. They would just be in stacks. They would be like in the stack that you see in front of you, but all around the apartment. There was a very definitive before and after when uh, it was just you and Chris living here, and then when females started asking yeah. by it, and it was the, the after was better. Um, in, in our apartment in Harlem, do you remember that apartment, Lenny? Yeah, the one that got condemned for having black mold in it. Yep, that's the very one. Um, we also tried to make, the first time we tried to homebrew beer, we had like a homebrew gallon thing, and we just basically started the first part of the process and left it in one of those giant... Um, fermenting buckets but then we got we left it for too long and then both like were too afraid to go check what had happened so we just had nothing good no we just had this culture of bacterial like beer grain beer sitting in our apartment until we moved out and then we're like we got to do something about this and then we opened it one day and we're like Oh no! Was it, was it still liquid, or had it solidified <laughs> in some way? It was. It was this, sl- question. this slushy kind of um, just yeast infected, uh, l- like mess, and we had to dump it out. And we didn't have anywhere to dump it out, so we had to dump it out in our bathtub, and it was a mess. It smelled awful. You had to waffle stomp the pretty much the culture. Yeah. 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 How did it taste? <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, we finally drank That it. was the, our first batch we did not taste, but <laughs> eventually I got around to the home brewing thing, and now the operation is intermittent. Um, so welcome to the uh, pod, uh, cast. We never call it pod. Uh, mm-hmm. This is episode 54 with Brian Pisano. That's me, and the other guy here is Lenny. Hey, it's me, Lenny. So we're sitting here with Hart Uhl, who is a Middle East... He's actually from the Middle East, um, intellectually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he is born of the Islamic Enlightenment, and he got transported here um, in time. And now he's here to answer a bunch of questions for us about a topic that is very serious that we're going to get into. But first, Brian, you have something to say. Allow me to say, it's great to be here. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hearts on the record. It's great to be here. Um, no, I was going to give you our, our present for it. Oh, shit. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Hold on. Yeah. So, this is a, so hold on. This is a dramatic effect. Hold on, everybody. Great moments in podcasting. Hold on. I have to say something and then putting down the mic. <laughs> so I don't understand what's happening right so now. What's happening right now is that um, so I really thought and we both really were really excited about the Bears playoff run. So I got a present for Lenny oh, no. <laughs> and it's a little too late because they lost. So, Lenny, I bought one for you and one for me. Which one oh do you want? Uh, give me the bear one. The oh, bear. This is nice, dude. Thank yeah. you. So I got us some some <laughs> some NFL gear. Uh, Brian got two uh, baseball hats. Uh, they're both Chicago Bears hats. Uh, they say monsters on the midway on the side. One is the roaring bear logo, and the other one is the uh, C. Interestingly enough, that C logo, um, if you want some little history lesson, it's, it's the C on the side of the Bears helmet. Uh, that actually used to be the logo of the Chicago Cardinals. Oh. Um, and when the Chicago Cardinals moved to St. Louis... And then on to Arizona, meaning Arizona currently has the NFL's oldest franchise. Yeah. Started on the south side of Chicago, and they played in, I think, Comiskey or Sox Park at the time. And th- to consolidate the fan bases, the Bears, whose logo used to be that old-timey B that you sometimes see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that used to be the Bears logo. They replaced it with the Cardinals logo. Oh. Said that it stood for Chicago, and it was an effort to consolidate the fan base. Very Syrian uh, situation. <laughs> a lot of land grabbing. Uh, entities just dropping out. <laughs> that uh, is would, the, would you say that the the for now Arizona Cardinals are the Kurds of the NFL? Yeah, they <laughs> a long lasting culture that just moved out, out to the desert. Yeah. Um, um, so thank you, Brian. Uh, this was a heartbreaking season, but yeah. I assume that by the time next year rolls around, I'll be ready to watch football again. So I'll have this hat on. Thank you. And I can join the bandwagon pretty quickly this time. Absolutely. Well, there might be a Jets bandwagon for me to join. I'll be on both. Um, we're happy to have Hart here today. So um, the occasion for this uh, this episode is it's a, it's a pretty timely one as far as Infinity License episodes have gone because um, this week. Um, marks the two-year, the midway point of the Trump administration. Uh, oh, yeah. On Sunday, it's going to be January 20th. And in my mind, right now, we're in the middle of a really serious um, uh, kind of just a chapter of, the, of this administration that is really emblematic of, I think, what, what, the, what the experience of President Trump has been like, and that is the Syrian pullout. Uh, so... The brief history of it is basically that we've been in this war for, we've been inv engaged in this war, which we're going to talk about the history of a lot, um, for a couple of years and uh, less than a decade. And it's a fight that has continued, it's been very consuming of, in the region, and, you know, last month, obviously, Trump decided on a whim, while he was on a call with President Erdogan, <laughs> he decided... He, he's actually the most goal. <laughs> Erdogan just suggested maybe we should pull out, and Trump was like, you're right, it's ours, we're out of here. <laughs> I, I'm out of here, actually. And so now he's ordered this pullout, and it's caused a lot of... It's which, caused which even overshot Erdogan's request. Yeah, right? Erdogan it, was shocked. On, he was like, wait, hold on, we're not ready for that. <laughs> but I think he's come to like it. And so we're going to talk about all the fallout from this. Uh, so I mean, I think, it's, I think it's, I mean, it's such a huge topic. I think probably it'd be, it'd be best for us to start... I think we should ask ourselves, you know, what was Trump Syria policy, right? How I mean, I think probably one of his defining, you know, goals or or, or changes was, you know, he wanted to differentiate himself from right. Obama policy, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how did he do that? By actually trying to be very aggressive, more of a risk taker in his fight against the Islamic State than the Obama administration. I think, you know, probably when he was going around the country, he he kept trying to imply that Obama was weak on ISIS. So as soon as he gets into office, he actually really tries to 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 to, to raise the game. And we saw some consequences of that in other places in the world, Yemen, in which right. I believe yeah, like uh, a, a, a few American service members were were, were killed. Um, we have troops on the ground in Yemen. No, we authorize. Sorry, based on like you know open source reporting, kind of like Delta Force kind of guys. We author yeah. authorize various things, probably based out of like a base in Djibouti or something. But so anyway, it felt like in the in the in the first stages of the of the Trump presidency, Syria policy was was ratcheted up. We authorized various um, you know covert operations in northern Syria against ISIS when um, when the Syrian uh, regime uh, committed the chemical weapons attack, and right. uh, I believe Khan Sheikhoun. We authorized strikes on on the uh, like air air facilities that we maybe that where they could have originated from. 
Um, they just like they just essentially bombed an airport. Like, they the, did. They created an airport, which was then you know fixed within days. And yeah. the administration was <laughs> yeah. was aware that it was going to be fixed within days. You know that was that right. that reality was part of the internal debate. I read that in Fear over the the holidays. Oh yes, actually, um, probably worth <laughs> reading. By the way, but it it feels dated already, right? Like so much yeah. stuff happens in a month. That right. I still haven't dated, read Fire and Fury. I started reading right. Fire and Fury a little late, and I was like, all of this is already like out the door. Like and also <laughs> been dispro- a lot of it's been disproven. Yeah. The copy that I saw still had like spelling errors and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but, so, but so anyway, to bring it to the Kurds, yeah. right, one gets the sense that in the last few years, um, yeah, they've been they've been pushed around quite a bit by first sort of feeling like they had uh, uh, a, a major supporter who was willing to give them lots of investment. Then, you know, getting burned by the erratic nature uh, of this president who said things like, all right, uh, you know, not not going to give any more aid to Syria. That includes aid to uh, the SDF and 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 I guess the 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 administration there. Um, so that was totally on the line. Um, I the guess apparently the Saudis stepped up and 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 filled that gap. Interesting, because uh, isn't that? I mean, that's kind of a long. That's like upholding essentially a long American tradition of promising to the Kurds that are like we're helping you out, and then just pulling the rug, uh, using right. it when it's convenient as a media ploy, and then being like, oh, like well, it's not. It's this is a little bit of an overcommitment on our right. part, and no longer convenient for us, so we'll kind of change our minds. I mean, like the absolute reality is that you know we were handing out iPads <laughs> with proprietary <laughs> targeting software on them. Uh, that's all open source reporting, right? Like that's really like, that's in the news. Like I've I've seen you know Arab Arab language newscasts where they like have the camera over the shoulder <laughs> of like a female, by the way, because because the 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 the, the PYD and, and YPG and I suppose the PKK are f- the real fe- fundamentally femi- feminist in ideology. Right. The real slay queens. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what <laughs> yeah, I'll say. The <laughs> um, you know, sh- showing how she p- puts you know f- you know. Points at pl- at blocks and and places, and the Americans vet the targets and then and then take them out. So like you know, like the the level of <laughs> it's the, more like Call of Duty. Like. I mean, <laughs> the, the level of, of cooperation is is was very very deep for a very long time. And you know, we we drove the Islamic State just totally to the to the furthest corners of of Syria. Um, and most recently, the president said, you know, we were only ever in Syria to defeat the Islamic State. And now they are defeated. So we're getting out of here. And something you're referencing is kind of w- w- the implication, because you mentioned how Trump kind of came in really hard on it, is it's mind-boggling now to unilaterally decide that this is a finished fight when none of the no one in the security state in, in our defense apparatus feels like it's finished, which I think is a, is a conclusion that I would like to question a little bit. But just going back, you remember... Ted Cruz's comment about let's see if we can make sand glow when he was talking he was on a campaign trail and it's he and it was about bombing I, I yeah it was yeah, yeah. It, it because and it was about killing off ISIS and what that means is you know ISIS ISIS became a really convenient ploy for everyone in the world um it was I, I've heard I, I used to work with a, a Syrian guy who's from Aleppo and he said that there you know in his in his uh circles there was a lot of theorizing that isis was too convenient a construction that obviously this was you know typical conspiracy theory like you know this was created but the outcome of it is not really that debatable that basically this thing came together that united all these inimical forces in the region uh for something which was the which was its own defeat 
and so they basically allowed ISIS. I don't I don't agree with this, but basically, regardless of how it came to be, ISIS represented something that was such a threat that Iran was working in concert with, you know, American-backed uh, presence there, and and there was this. Um, that, that was the case in in, a, in Iraq. I think it'd be fair to say there's there's not working together. Surely no. Um, but there's there just was deconfliction. They have like mm. they ha- and what was funny about that is that it seemed like what actually happened was they basically allowed you know the uh, Iranian and then the Russian backed and the Turkish backed and all these different uh, entities just started drawing lines that were kind of internal borders inside of Syria based on who controlled what. And at first it was like wow I can't believe all these forces are getting you know, uh, getting along in the same tiny space. And then what eventually happened was, like, all it did was it just allowed this proxy war to happen where, like, Israel's bombing Iranian targets or, like, Iranian-backed targets. And I think all it means is that the side, that the, the you know, some forces that Iran is backing, when they get backed by, when they get bombed by Iran, it's kind of an attack on Iran, you know? It's almost like the way that, like, the World Cup is a safe you know, arena for, like, soft nationalism's legacy to play out, like Germany versus France. Let's try it again, you know. <laughs> but this time it's with a bunch of imported African guys and a ball, you know. Um, now we, like, the, the, we have this new kind of, like, sport-like proxy war where all these, all these um, players can get in the same tiny sphere of land and, uh, and kind of have a little Cold War. Yeah, except for the fact that it's very much a hot war. Well, um, that is true. And, and <laughs> so I meant, I meant and like we're not straight up shooting no, at but Russians. But it also <laughs> almost feels to me like th- like this 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 sort of perspective <laughs> that you've painted uh, assumes the defeat or irrelevance or lack of capacity of the Islamic State. Um, I think it's a little bit historically revisionist in that sense because really, ba- back in. In its in its in its moments of extreme growth, I, I believe throughout 2014, um, when the Islamic State took over a third of Iraq and it felt like a like a third or more of Syria, um, though much of that is just desert. Um, we truly had, and, and I think we did right, like we truly had a new type of of truly terrifying state. On our hands, yeah, and maybe maybe many would con- contend with that using that word, but um, they were the, the first th- ones to go viral. They, were I mean, the, they, I mean, went, they went viral with their own crazy, insane state. In like this a, this is not a stateless this area. Is, it's not a, like the threat that they posed to American life, but really all life in in the region and, and and throughout Europe was is you know it shouldn't be discounted, and and the inevitability of our victory, you know, was not assured. It required careful planning and very hard work. Well, that's a that's a good entree to kind of talk about the history of I think w- our our relationship with the Syrian conflict because it seems to and me much like sacrifice. Sorry. And the what? And much sacrifice. On yeah, on the part of people that were not necessarily directly Americans. Uh, True. We and and I think that that's an important part of it because um, the question of was our victory, uh, w- uh, you know, our victory is never guaranteed. I think that from the outset we. And at the time, it meant the Obama administration. Probably, pretty much every power player in the world assumed that it was, and that I don't think that that turned out to be necessarily accurate, or it might have been naive or hubristic. But if you remember, so in two thousand, the history of the Syrian war, as far as in my simplistic understanding, you have the Arab Spring, which is right when I, when I graduated college in two thousand ten, and I remember like being at home in Chicago and watching the Tahrir Square stuff, which you were at. Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> Confirmed. <laughs> that was um, the first time I heard about Al Jazeera. That's how I watched seriously? it. Seriously? Yeah. I, was, wow. I guess I was pretty out of the loop, or not as much of a media junkie, but I was like, I watched it all live on Al Jazeera. I'm like, this is a great news channel. Oh, no, I had heard of Al Jazeera. I, this is the first time I've heard of Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera, like, West, that they had a Western market, like... Mm. Uh, that actually didn't exist for that long, I think, to be fair. Yeah, so I know I knew about them in the context of, like, the Iraq War and that they were media-directed, sourced in the mi- Middle East, but I was like, oh, I didn't realize that they had a Western audience, like, directed product. And in, in, in the middle of that time, it seemed like there was going to be this, like, massive uprising. Hart, what are your memories of, like, from the middle of the Arab Spring? Like, was there, like, a sense of hopefulness or, like, destiny about it? or Western Absolutely. Universe? I remember just being so swept up and the idealism of so many people gaining voices and celebrating that for the first time. It what was, was it, it was fundamentally about? What was at stake? Who was fighting for it? I mean, so I remember walking in the streets in Cairo, and, of course, a reporter wanted to talk to the white guy who was in the streets. And I remember just screaming in Arabic at this guy. Not scream, but, you know, like, uh, all sorts of just platitudinous stuff about freedom and like human civilization, like the wa- like the war for expression, like it was here sure. and now. Um, and I remember, you know, just so many young people all all just totally and absolutely believing in that. And I think even for policymakers, um, it's 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 absolutely infectious. And mm-hmm. and and I think I'm sure you know the the president has has spoken about this about you know feeling the the weight of the of those dreams. In his policy decisions, and a really complicated Syria and Here, Libya. Uh, here's a question for you. Um, one of the big uh, kind of contentions, I think, in the rest of the world about the Arab Spring, which was there was the allegation that this was sort of Western funded or led. Um, obviously, it aligns with the romantic notion that Westerners have of revolution, but what, what would you say about the idea that it was like a Western project? Well, I mean, we have funded. American civil society, some of which is 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 aligned in the congressional budget, some of it which is not, have has funded you know freedom of expression, civil society groups, um, electoral training, all all mainly through the lens of like post Soviet uh, Europe and 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 ensuring peaceful transitions in those places, but also you know maybe maybe in the post-colonialization era, but post-Cold War era, you know, trying to build up civil society throughout, you know, all of the rest of the world. So, you know, it it would be a lie if you said that there weren't some small, you know, grants being given to citizen journalists. Um, It'd be a lie if I said that, you know, there isn't a very well-documented history of, of, for example, the State Department paying for, um, like, internet um, access tools uh, for, for Syrian activists so that they could upload uh, photos of, uh, of atrocities uh, during the early stages of the war. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's in our interest to, I don't know, to, to I mean, uh, sorry, first of all, just American citizens who believe in freedom of expression and believe in these things, like they want to support it however they can across the sure, world. Sure, it could arguably be a good thing that we were allowing that. Sure, um, and, and, and I would say that... Uh, yeah, like the 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 go- it's also a line item in the in the budget to do that as well. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, <laughs> so, but then of course, like uh, maybe it's the worst form of Orientalism to suggest that the United States caused the Arab Spring. It just totally oh, denies. It just yeah. totally denies an entire. I'm not saying like, that. Like, no, no, right, Russian right, right, right. media says right, right. that. Right, right. It it, de- it denies them all. Like yeah, any agency, and it took incredible courage for people to go out and 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 demand demand their rights and and. They damn sure well did. 
But I think, you know, it's interesting we talk about that time because that time was filled with kind of a lot of hope in probably in those in that region and here in the U.S. Um, it kind of also reflects at similarly at that time our infatuation with like almost the next phase of the Internet and Web 2.0. And the that's totally true. Yeah. Twitter was the Twitter was like spring was kind of the, that yeah. was the narrative. We were all what like, is the power of Facebook? Right. Oh, yes. It yes. can change the world. And it was. Yeah, exactly. And now we're all kind of get now the hangover has officially shown up on that because um, because that's what we, we all uh, if now that we have some distance, essentially a decade or close to a decade of that time to reflect on that. And now we're like, oh, now we're seeing not only what the, the downsides of what was going on in the Arab Spring or like, you know, the realities of governance and things that people have to deal with post-revolution, uh, uh, but also the realities that we have to deal with now that we forked over 100 uh, percent of the Internet <laughs> and our data to like three companies <laughs> that, that were promising us a revolution, but have essentially just become these massive trusts. Actually, the Arab Spring <laughs> is a good is a good metaphor for what the like social revolution. Yeah. <laughs> like the social media. yeah. It's a m- way more violent yet somehow microcosmic representation of what web 2.0 was supposed to be. Don't yeah. worry guys, web 4.0 is coming blockchain. Blockchain baby, new internet. <laughs> Still Back bullish even so though Lenny and I are super down on our bitcoin right now. <laughs> so can I, can I ask you a question then? I think some would argue that the Arab Spring and its uh so-called failure showed us what the Middle East really is. Okay. Would you say that the failure of the dream of social media also has shown us all who we really are? Actually, yeah, totally. I, I would say more so the latter than yeah, the former. I don't uh, think, you know, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, like, um, I just think, because... I, obviously, we understand. Sorry, I, I disagree with the the former. Just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, fi- gotcha, I figured yeah. as much because the former, you know, is the, is the complications of like governance. And yeah, that. totally. It's there's a very specific history that caused um, the the Middle East in 2011. But any year, any part of the world at any specific point in time has a specific historical precedent that's caused them to act that way. Whereas the so- this is a really interesting precept, though. I think the social media revolution. Um, is not necessarily specific to any kind of human. I think that, like, when you introduce alcohol to people that have never had alcohol before, they to, they don't have enzymes to process it, and they become addicted to it. And I think that, you know, what it revealed about kind of the, this mass id um, that's been reflected back to us is generally true about humans at any point in our development. I think we're social animals, mostly, that want to essentially be presented with palliatives and we want to know what other people are th- doing most uh, the most important piece of information is what others think um and to be led and i think that all of that is pretty much the the bestial kind of um nature of humans whereas the middle east has been so r- it's been cut up it's been ravaged it, it has a lot of legitimate grievances it also I, I don't think that the Arab Spring, I mean, I, I you know, that's not just me, but like, no, the Arab Spring was, was probably a righteous due movement that was the um, another better part of human nature, which is the yearning for, you know, some kind of self-actualization. It can't happen if you're being oppressed. And that was a, a noble exponent of that. But it did fail. And I think the first place that I really saw it fail was in Syria, um, because I remember, I remember, a time. See, this is when I'm talking to my coworkers who are all like 22 years old. I saw things like I remember. I'm old <laughs> enough to remember uh, uh, Kazaa. <laughs> you know? Reminder: oh, We're yeah. we're in our early 30s. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a it's a terrible reminder of how long the the 
this I, tragedy has been unfolding. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I'm old enough to remember when I thought, oh, Assad is not along for this world. <laughs> you know, like he's it's 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 a matter of time, and it and then it kind of dragged out, and it wasn't, and it just he just stayed in power, and um, I think a really watershed moment for our country's involved actually. A watershed moment for in our country's history, uh, you know, happened in 2013 when Obama had said there. Um, we were kind of doing the the token imperial game. We had, you know, we didn't want to invade Iraq again, but you know, we also were still the cop on the beat. And Obama made this ill-advised comment, ill-advised because he didn't mean it, um, which was that if there was a red line crossed with the use of chemical weapons, he was going to do something about it. John Wayne style, and the, I think the influence of that was that, um, from what my understanding, like chemical weapons has basically just kind of been accepted as like this in, in this sort of uh, um, like neocon like Samantha Power-ish like conception of what is a war crime. It's like, well, for nerve agents are really not good. Like you shouldn't do that. You know, you can kill people with machetes and stuff like that. But if, you know, well, it's a violation of the Geneva convention. Right? Yeah. But That's why I, I think uh, maybe we'd d a longer conversation we could have yeah. would be, and we should not deviate, but like what, what this concept of like war crimes is, is a joke. No one cares about it. It's never obeyed. Um, yeah, it's only it's only. God forbid you use for chlorine gas. Now, excuse me, while I use a robot to blow up a wedding. And exactly. You know I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, that so, that an like, enemy of that wedding's attendees gave me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's a, it's a totally defunct uh, concept. But anyway, so based on this, ver I guess my point in, in mentioning that is that. Um, the chemical weapons line is essentially an academic, theoretical, pretty arbitrary line, and that, and for Obama to have committed to that in a public way um, means you have to do something about it. Maybe it shouldn't be so academic and theoretical, and you know, just it's 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 kind of a dirty look to be using chemical weapons against your people. Well, they did, and we didn't do anything about it. And there was a period of time in like the summer of 2013, which I remember pretty vividly, when we were thinking about the Obama administration was considering. Are we going to have to do something about this? Because they pretty clearly used sarin against their own people, the Assad regime. And he did the most Obama movement possible, which was, well, actually, I should probably go get authorization from Congress, which when the hell was the last time anyone wanted to get authorization for Congress against the, to, to de just to declare war against the state? So passe. Um, I'm kid. I mean, I'm like not kidding, but like it should not be passe, but... Anyway, he didn't do anything about it, and you know, for everyone that's wringing their hands like Mattis, like over the withdrawal of troops right now uh, under Trump, I think we can definitely point to that moment in 2013 when we realized, actually, you know what? Nobody in America has the appetite to go fight a land war in the Middle East right now, and that kind of ties back. To, and then right after that, you have um, I guess I was finished giving the doing the history portion. You have after that, Assad stays in power, and I think that there was still active fighting against the Islamic State. But then in 2015, you have this crazy moment where his regime is about to fail, and Russia decides to intervene. And they prop him back up, and then kind of here we are. And, and what's crazy, I don't know if anyone's noticed this, but the moment that Russia decided to intervene in Syria is basically the same time that they started to attack the DNC with hacks, and which is like the summer of 2015. And what's interesting about that to me in terms of assessing the historicity of all this is that it's kind of like, I think they have a better understanding of our, cu our culture than we do because you have 
the idea of like what are the, what are the Americans like willing to defend like you know they have their imperial adventure their identity as like these you know the global cop and they have their politics and you know what are they which of these things would they be willing to defend and the answer was at at least as of now is neither they, they the, in Syria they kind of robbed us of you know we couldn't become we couldn't appoint a, a, a you know a bremer like a, a viceroy of Syria we're not going to just walk to victory and then they also ruined our politics. Well, they also exploited, I mean, w- um, American general fatigue and being at war in that region. And also just Amer- the general public, which has a high ap- appetite for um, media content around, you know, like war content, I guess. But they still had, ex- like, I mean, you could ask the average American today, like, I mean, if they knew who Assad was or who, like, who the Syrian Defense Force was, and uh, they, they would they would have no clue. And now this, that's not me being condescending coastal elite. I barely know this, and I just spend a shit ton of time on the internet, you know? Like, um, like Why do you think Mattis resigned, either of you? Oh, that's a good question. And that's a really a good next point. General Mattis, for what I, who I didn't really know of before the 2016 election, I heard from even guests on this podcast, former military members and all that stuff. It's like, well, I'm voting for Trump because of G- because I know he's going to appoint General Mattis, and I have utmost faith in General Mattis. I'd heard that from a lot of people in the either current or ex-military community. And I, I was like, well, why? He's like, well, because he gets the job done. And that was about it. Like, I got a, kind of a baseline report. So him re- resigning was like, oh, I'm really curious. I want to follow up with these people who were big on him being a big part of Trump's administration foreign policy apparatus. Well, do you still now that he's like the main selling point for you, you getting giving this guy your vote has just left, you know. So I don't, I have no idea. I think it's something around the like him bucking trends around being like, well, this is really going to put egg on our face on the American military's face and make it look like we didn't do our due diligence. That would be my guess. I don't really have a good, guess. I mean, my assumption, I don't really know either. It's a good question. Um, my assumption is just that uh generals like to fight wars and depriving them of a war makes takes away their toys i mean it's kind of like a military industrial complex like is you know that's their raison d'etre what what is your idea well i mean our action in syria is not really big enough i think to merit sorry physically in order to i think like uh justify your hypothesis which is like oh we've we've yeah We've ripped the guts out of everything I believe in, which is uh, war machinery and mass campaigns. Um, what, I, what I've heard, um, which is not privileged information in any way, it's just fellow like friends of mine that are Marines that have thought about this, is you know, they, they think there's a, there's a few options. Like One is that probably Mattis hadn't necessarily given his personal um, promises to, to the Kurds for anything, but it's possible that our policy was something that involved hanging around... And I think this may actually be public policy. Uh, I feel like I read this recently. Like, sticking around as long as it took to whatever, achieve s- whatever their objectives were, or, or or at least long enough to, I don't know, a- a- achieve some sort of s- stability in this place. And right? agreed, sticking like, we held the up the, bar- the bargain. Yeah. Um, or the Kurds? Uh, yeah, I mean, like, part of our part of our relationship with them is, is yeah, like, you're going to help us, we're going to be fighting ISIS, and we're going to be arming you and, and, and giving, and, like, Putting certain prescriptions on your behavior and and, and certain um, yeah standards by which you're going to be organizing this entire area and 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 certain things you're going to tolerate that we're going to do while we're here, um, and it's quite possible that a total about phase you know it 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 one it, it offends the, the Secretary of Defense just because it goes totally against all the institu- institutionalized policy making that uh, a, a leading power needs in order to succeed in the world, but also like it personally like violated whatever his sense of honor was, which apparently was strong. 
I think, yeah, that's what I would see. My sense, heart, I agree with that. Because what the whole thing, what everyone's melting down about the Trump administration is that it's counter to every part of the American century and the Bretton Woods kind of post-World War II order that worked. Whereas, like, you knew that if America had, like, kind of committed, oh, oh, if you're a Central American country that had, like, a communist leader, then we were going to mess you up. But, like, if we were going to commit to help you out, whether that be a good or bad actor, like, the, um, the American uh, foreign foreign uh, policy apparatus saw that through to the full extent of <laughs> and measure of that they could. Um, so I think that, yeah, so anything, like a guy who's raised in that principle and obviously a career military person would be... Well, uh, so, and so, so then just a contributing factor is I think that just from a policy perspective, if the Secretary of Defense has been ordered to, through his military means, you know, d- defeat this enemy, right, who I think objectively is not yet defeated, um, and also do your best to circumscribe the influence of various Iranian militias or the growth of, 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 of you know, Syrian... Uh, you know, objectively evil power. Um, guess what? A hasty withdrawal means that the Secretary of Defense will inevitably fail in the objective that's been set for him. And I think that he found that intolerable. So two things. Um, one, my first question is, I think it's worth asking whether we were ever going to have an influence there at all. Does the pullout matter? Because I think increasingly over the years it's been revealed that we don't have the stomach for participating in the Syrian conflict. And so the idea that we're forsaking While some While deploying goal, thousands of troops there that occupy an entire... Yeah, but... That, that facilitate the occupation of an entire region and, and also like major bases that where we have had major, major clashes. Yes, because I, I, can, I can see that through the lens of a American reflex for imperial police action. Um... And the idea that because there's a conflict in the Middle East, and maybe it's a noble noble impulse that we have to do something about it. I mean, that Syrian boy photograph gets published in a newspaper, and all of a sudden, like, you know, we feel a, com- a compulsion to do something about it. We need to counter Iran. Like, there's there's plenty of good to semi-good to, to kind of reflexive slash bad ideas to be there. But the bottom line is, if there is a major mini World War III happening in an area of the world that we have a direct hand in causing, we got to be there. And does anyone, and so that, I, I don't, I don't struggle for another explanation besides that to explain why we do have, th- putting thousands of troops th- somewhere is nothing. We have thousands of troops in in Niger right now, you know. Um, but, but so there, that's the first question is, I, I think we could, we, and we could talk about that, like, do you think that we really are, to, to that goal of Mattis's, are we really forsaking an outcome that we would have affected? I'm, I'm skeptical. The other thing is, the last time you were on this podcast, Art, we, we talked about the prospect of a Kurdistan. And um, because your answer was very emphatically, this is not a possible thing to achieve, it kind of made me look at all of this whole thing differently. So you're saying that Mattis might have had this uh, sort of personal affront at being made a liar of maybe he made some sort of deal or something and and this caused him to you know they they he's not going to be able to follow through on that but isn't it true that the kurds b- based on the conversation that we had a couple months ago were never explicitly expecting american sponsorship for a state particularly maybe they didn't want to be left to get killed by turkey but what promises were they did they think that they were really in line for? I think that if I had to guess, right, so the Syrian Kurds have, have never right, formally 
uh, sought independence, total statehood um, in in you know what used to be Syrian territory, what would used to be Sy- Syrian territory. So my assumption is that we made assurances, and I think this might even be public, um, that we would hang around, stay in their dominated areas until a political solution is reached, whatever that autonomous solution is. So um, even though it's just a few American troops, just the presence prevents Turkey from taking some sort of unilateral action that pulls the Kurds off the negotiating table. And it just strengthens the hand of of, of the Kurds at, at that table when they finally decide their final status. And that kind of, I mean, that kind of worked for them. I mean, in the Kurds that live in northern Iraq, they kind of have, even though they don't have their own state, they do have kind of an autonomous, right? Am I, am yes, I absolutely. And yeah, I, and so I, they, even though it's not a, a recognized state, they still are self-governing to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. And um, I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit hazy on the exact history of the autonomous region of northern northern Iraq, right? The Kurdish Kurdish autonomous region, um, but. Although there's definitely a history of betrayal on the part of the United States, you know, through, through, throughout the last few decades, um, sorry, like maybe like the 90s, um, yeah, like I think that our our policy was a fundamental part of, of making sure that that autonomy existed. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, in particular, I think you mentioned the re- the key moment, and it's kind of what you brought up before, Lenny, with the you know Erdogan on ne- brokering a deal with Trump and then essentially overshooting the deal. Which is that, like, well, the the Kurds that live in Turkey right now are are very seriously dealing with an existential threat within you know with the dictatorship of uh, Turkey. So like that, they, they know that their neighbors, you know, like right across the way, are like, okay, well, now the one thing that we had as a kind of defense piece for going working for us is now leaving, and you know, maybe promises have been made. And now they're just like, well, man, the now that we know we can't deal with the United States. What good is a promissory note from the United States at this point? Like you Which, know, again, and yeah. we've all at this point talked about this, but th- this is not the first time we've totally abandoned the Kurds. After I know, but yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah. what you, so, yeah. so the answer to the one question I asked is basically, Hart, you're saying we don't need to, we needn't have promised them Kurdistan in order to still have promised them our support in a political sense, so that they're not as they're not as um, afflicted by. Right. So like a full scale, a full scale American withdrawal practically, I mean, some would say that it guarantees a Turkish invasion of northern Syria. Um, It's something that they have repeatedly threatened and uh, mobilized uh, uh, significant forces to suggest that they would do that, you know, several times. Um, It's my understanding that there's been regular artillery exchanges across the border anyway is just sort of a matter of habit. Um, <laughs> look, 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 this this history is so complicated, even just inside Turkey. I don't really fully understand it, but it's my understanding that maybe in the last few years, um, you know, th- there was some sort of internal ceasefire between the Turks and the Kurds that facilitated uh, a large number of PKK, like Turkish Kurdish. I guess they're Kurdish, but they're from you know inside Turkey. Um, PKK fighters to leave and then go into northern Syria and be part of the the battle against the Islamic State and, and part of shoring up the the um, you know capacity of, of w- whatever this sort of autonomous region is. Um, so sorry. Long story short, I think Erdogan would like nothing more because of whatever domestic domestic political pressures he's playing, because of whatever the um, their perspective is on the the history of, of of violent struggle that there's been in Turkey. You know than to get all the PKK in one place and for the world to turn around 
Sorry, would you like for me to refer them as the YPG or something else? Or? No, no, no. Uh, I'm just, just I'm. Hart's reacting to me making a a cringing face, and it's just it's just tragic. Right, right. To get them all in one place, and then, yeah, forcibly displace them. You know, t- t- remove them. You know, this, this is what happened in Afrin, right? Within just the last year. Um, uh, I'd be so curious. It, it, do you think it's a hard? This is kind of a tangential r- r- reference to that, but do you think maybe the reason why Trump and maybe other people would abandon um, policy objectives by the PKK or YPG is for those for listeners who don't know who they are, they're essentially a, 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 some would say communist or socialist movement within, uh, like they're a hyper fe- feminist and communist movement. And also, when was the last time we supported a Marxist paramilitary? Well, that's what I'm saying. That's oh, like, and, all, and yeah. sorry, and also ter- terrorist designated. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, I didn't. Know, but uh, we support them, but t- tacitly um, with with within Syria. Yes. And for th- and and we call them something different. Right. Right. So it's just about that exactly. Yes. Yeah. Let's see. That's what I'm saying. That's like that. Well, then Trump. Do you well, think Trump is against like, Why are we supporting these communists? Like. Uh, I'm sure he does not see that level of distinction. He probably doesn't even know that they're, that's they're a leftist. Um, the PKK is designated terrorist. Or I think the YPG, because that's dis- right. The, I remember remember the the YPG are always trying to say that they're not officially part of the PKK. Correct. I think that so the PKK is listed. They are, okay. and the YPG, I believe, is not. Yeah, because they're directly fighting. So directly, us directly sponsoring the fighters is permissible because we're, they're not. Well, what we did is we we. Added a few Arab and I believe Syriac militias to the bunch, and then called it the Syrian Democratic Forces. <laughs> right. right, yeah, it was, it was just uh, to kind of like yeah, make it to, to water it down a little bit and just but, be like. <laughs> but something that I wouldn't mind returning to is this this sort of very bleak picture I painted of of a Turkish invasion. Um, I think there's also a very compelling argument to be made that actually that's impossible and, and would never happen. Um, Maybe it's not that compelling an argument, actually, since they already did that in northwestern Syria. Right, right. <laughs> right? Um, but I don't know. Uh, maybe in terms of recent recent current events, has has Erdogan um, accumulated a little bit more uh, liberal legitimacy than he had previously through um, his dealings with the Khashoggi uh, affair? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, is this something that he'd be unwilling to lose by a full-scale invasion and massacring of... Uh, an entire population. I, I are you, are you saying that because that he wouldn't that like he he's now feeling as though it's as a member of he's like hey you know I'm already a member of NATO being a part of the West isn't so bad uh, and that he he would not want to give that up. I don't think he gives a shit. I think that I, I think that he's exploited. Um, I think he figured out a way to exploit a, a little petty uh, you know uh, schism in the in the, the alliance that he's a part of and uh, would totally give it all away to be to do a land grab because the explicit mm-hmm. point of what the the Trump withdrawal is suggesting is that we're not going to care like have at it and also there's a lot of courtship between him and Russia the, between you know Turkey and Russia and if they can figure out how to carve it up in an equitable way and you know I don't think that I think that they're kind of banking on it, uh, the fact that or the the prospect that now no one's going to stop them so I just wanted to take a moment to, to st- take a step back and just observe that we're doing something that happens in pretty much every single conversation on the Middle East, which is starting to see this place as a, as a chessboard, mm. yeah. right? And talking about genocide in a sort of flippant sort of like game way. Um, and, and anyway, like I just, I just, it's something that happens a lot and it's absolutely terrible. Like, like, I mean like the conversation sort of going in that direction. Um, but I just want to say like American presence in Kurdistan precludes any of those things 
from happening. What have we stopped from happening? Russia has a foothold. Russia has two warm water ports, which like. So what we stop is what we stop is we 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 maintain influence over PKK behavior, which would uh, justify a Turkish action, okay. and we are literally human shields to prevent Turkish action. And by the same time, we also have you know human resources on the ground to continue to fight uh, any remaining Islamic state, and we facilitate through this human shield action on the Kurds, um, the potential at least for the Syrian conflict to actually reach a state of ripeness, what we call in conflict resolution. Ripeness theory is this idea that conflicts have to reach this point, right, where the sides you know, stop thinking that war is the best means for achieving their objective and start thinking that political dialogue is. I see. It's widely debunked, but... Yo, we... <laughs> it's a cool idea. It makes sense. It's like the broken windows theory of international foreign policy. Is there any... Is there any... Uh, yeah. Is there any corollary theory of ripeness for an imperial regime that's lasted, like, 50 years? Because I would say that we have achieved a state of ripeness for deploying troops abroad, and we're probably about ready to pick that fruit and bring bring some of them home and i i, I guess yeah. i guess where, where i'm going with this obviously is is this a bad thing is this a thing that, i mean of all the shit that trump has done this is not something that i i this is something i find hard to really right the, the bad thing is is policy developed in the most ir- like you know Ill, 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 not irrational. I guess well, it is irrational. It's impulsive, and um, yeah, like we we need to have a national security council that's doing its job. Absolutely, Th- this is the ultimate Trump moment in so many ways because a it's on the hilarious front, it's that it's like this weird callback to the Cold War where you have like Russia, us fighting Russia in a proxy war. You know, like th- this is basically just like Vietnam. It's hitting, it's hitting the nostalgia of our generation. I think that's what it really <laughs> is. I mean, we all we've all been raised on a nostalgia style. And <laughs> well, it's, it's, but it's not even. It's directly the same actors. It's like, you know. Anyway, so there, there's that aspect. But no. But in, in all seriousness, I mean, I I respect what you said about the fact that we had we were having influence there. I think that by the perspective of the most hawkish people in America, we had failed because Iran had a growing influence. Uh, Turkey and Russia were had a new arena for courtship. Russia had a strategic foothold there. Assad is still in power. Years after we explicitly said, after Hillary, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton explicitly said that that was a, a precondition for us leaving the area. So we failed in all those things on paper. But I I hear you saying that that we might have been still having an influence in protecting real people and, and real valid uh, you know, um, national movements, in addition to the, us gathering intelligence and stuff like that and kind of just being in the fray in a token sense. But um, but the, this also is coming on the heels of decades of essentially failed interventionism. And this certainly epitomizes failed interventionism. Assad won the, the Syrian war. And, um, and we lost to the degree that we were fighting it at all. And Trump deciding to, d- to do a pullout is the same as his gripes with the TPP or with NAFTA or with, uh, you know, our corrupt mode of reality show politics or with the idea that paying taxes is patriotic, you know. Um, Trump upends all of these things in a really productive way, and he does it towards an an enormous detriment. He He prosecutes it in the stupidest way possible. He's prioritizes impulse over 
any kind of consideration. He's completely ignorant. It's going to kill people that should that we pre- that we by all rights should be protecting. And yeah, I mean, this is like it's like the ultimate Trump thing. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting because in it, 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 I agree that it's not executed the best way, and I'm not a big fan of President Trump. But the reason why President, so in all those things that you mentioned there, Lenny, like the TPP or pulling out of Syria or all these other le- or anti-NAFTA rhetoric, there are, he is like he's right about some elements of these things and is able to use his media acumen or whatever to sell to the American people. Is like whatever. Uh, who are these people? I don't know who the Sy- Syrian Democratic Forces are. ISIS is dead. I killed them all. Mission accomplished. Like uh, you know, like people buy that hook, line, and sinker. Uh, when the reality is much more nuanced. Obviously, people like in charge. And are part of the foreign policy apparatus, like General Mattis and other people, are aware of that and are like, okay, well, we have to govern this not like a reality TV show where we can just like terminate things uh, flippantly uh, and just say you're fired or you know ISIS, you're fired, we're done, we fired <laughs> all our missiles at you. Um, so, th- but the thing is that like, well, it goes back to what you said about it, just us having corrupt media, like a, a corrupt game show style media pol- media politics, where it's just like, well. Uh, you just got to be a you got to be the best pitch man for this. And guess what? Even if it's not entirely true, if you can pitch the idea that's like, well, why are these people? He's like, I love the troops. Why are they defending these people that we don't know anything about? It, there's a lot of good reasons. Hart Hart has demonstrated, but that's making a concerted, sane pitch to people over the course of maybe an hour-long conversation that we just had is a lot harder than giving a soundbite of just like, eh, I blew up the bad guys and the good guys are coming home. So there you go. Like, you know, I think that's just kind of really the summation of it. So I agree that Trump is dumb in those ways, but it's also kind of his genius, and it's the kind of a smart... He's like, uh, who, who cares? These people hate people I in Washington. I, uh, like, I don't... I'm not... I, genius is the wrong term. Well, but, the, the, uh, but it's specifically not the right term because what he's doing is he's reading tea leaves that are so... You have to be so elite... And blind to not see like this. I mean, the idea of bringing home troops from an area that nobody in this country can point to on a map is not a move of genius. It's a move. It's an obvious move that that's what I'm saying. It kind of encapsulates. Oh, what I think about? it's a play in I don't know media genius. I'd say like, and, and right, but like I guess it would be media genius if it was ca- it was actually cal- if I thought it was actually calculated and thought about. But now it's. Just I mean, you need to remember like this was not something that he settled on when he was in his pajamas at four in the morning and tweeting, right? right? This was a policy he settled on on a call with <laughs> President Erdogan. <laughs> with John Bolton sitting he next just to pulled him. It, he pulled it directly out of his ass. Yeah. He was tired of Erdogan complaining to, at him, and he said, fine, all right, fine. You want us out? We're going out. We're out. We're out. We're <laughs> done. And that was that. Well, that's what Lenny yeah. and I were texting about. It, and, and, and it was based, and by the way, it was based in a, a cost analysis. Like, why are we spending all this money on this? I don't yeah, it is kind of funny. The, the, okay, there's another, another ultimate, like, kind of consummate Trump. Like, the art of the deal guy. Somebody on the phone said, hey, why don't you uh, just leave? And he goes, okay. <laughs> like, completely caves in. <laughs> Can you just imagine just John Bolton's face? Just John Bolton just plots. Just like his his jaw hit the ground so hard <laughs> that the mustache followed it. Look, every single aspect of the place we're in right now is a tragedy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. totally. Every we, uh, aspect. I, oh and, and just to close, like, what I wanted to bring up is, who's the new Secretary of Defense? Pompeo. Or no, the Secretary of State. Um, who is it? It's an acting secretary, not yet confirmed, who the only thing he's ever done 
is be a Boeing executive. Oh, uh, military and Now, sorry, sorry I'm not, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know that much about this More guy. More Boeing okay. slander. Uh, I know. He, he, look, he's never <laughs> he should have been a Lockheed Martin executive. <laughs> <laughs> look, he's never served in the military. He's never done any work on foreign policy. However, uh, apparently he was uh, very famous for being, like, the fixer. Like, like a guy who fixed bad things yeah. uh, oh, at yeah. Boeing. A Paul um, Manafort kind of guy. And <laughs> he, has, he has spent many, many months right under Mattis, uh, and, and it's said that he knows the Pentagon inside and out, like better yeah, than anyone else. Yeah, because he's a fucking gunrunner, it sounds like. He's well, about... <laughs> anyway, like Jamal so... Jamal Khashoggi's uncle was a arms dealer in uh, Saudi Arabia, really a major arms dealer. Yeah, yeah. well, Jamal Khashoggi is essentially the... Wasn't he the oil executive, like the chief oil executive under not... Um, obviously not under Mohammed bin Salman, but as his father. Yeah, like he was like he's definitely an insider. He only became a journalist until after he got like ousted. Like, uh, hard. Like, I'm gonna throw quick fire some questions at you. Um, let's do it. All right, so we're gonna wrap up. So let's here. These are super easy questions that you Sorry, definitely. Before we begin, I just want to say I wish our acting secretary defense uh, secretary of defense all the best. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I truly for do. his yeah. algorithms that are parsing this transcript. Right. I um, wish him all the best. We definitely wish him to not choke on any pretzels. <laughs> um, okay, oh. Hart. Uh, what if the Iran deal was still in place? Do you think this would be any different? Uh, what's this? Uh, the pol- like if um, if the Iran deal if Iran still was looking forward to a future of potentially kind of mm, displacing Israel as the side piece, you know. Uh, of the United States, do you think that they would be that it would be a little bit easier to imagine a productive uh, balance of powers in Syria? In other words, what if we had like more allies that were like potential? You know, like Iran is like, well, we don't want to now that there's um, more, you know, uh, Iranian influence in Syria. If they were on our side still, if if they were looking forward to totally interlocked economies with the West, maybe they're not going to be so keen to like piss us off by allowing a massacre of Kurdish people, for example. Maybe they'd be a little bit better to leave uh, in custodianship. You know what I mean? Um, that is not a quick fire question. <laughs> just so you know, like, like the amount like the <laughs> amount of things we would have to un- unpack in like the paragraph qu- quick fire quick, quick fire, fire question, question you just for gave this me. Podcast is a forty minute answer. <laughs> no, sorry, that is a question with uh, the, answer the, a- the answer the answer of a lifetime. Really, um, it's a it's a master's class. I mean, <laughs> just just start with the thought that that yeah, Iran Iranian yeah. Uh, allegiance could shift like on a dime like that, and was ever even that for our inner favor is yeah a, a misunderstanding of the situation, for sure. I would say that uh, look um, when Iran as a state and a power in, in in this region, a significant power in this region, and a very successful power in this region has always sought to pull whatever levels of it, levers of influence that it could. And it's found the most success recently, and actually, sorry, not even recently, for decades, right, in supporting sub-state paramilitary groups that allow it to have veto over the decisions of the governments in which they operate. Um, Hezbollah obviously comes to mind. They have total veto power over the Lebanese government. Um, but now uh, in Iraq and Syria, uh, the Iranian state Likewise, has veto power over over the decisions of these states. Um, so, I would just say that you know, regardless of the nuclear deal, right? Uh, Iran has engaged in bad behavior that we've sought to influence, uh, that we see as destructive. I think. I think we could probably all all agree. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't. I don't uh, 
not going to change the zebra stripes. They would not be good custodians. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know this whole thing, I mean, it is prolonging it. But this now, if you put this in the context, is this a horrible analogy to make? But, like, the way that Iran plays politics in, in like, I guess you'd call it Central Asia and the Middle East, like, you know, with proxy wars and also, you know, funding groups that, is that similar to how, like, essentially United States, like, Monroe Doctrine, like, take control over certain Central and South American and Caribbean state? You know what I mean? Like, the, the way that we've kind of installed like kind of a power or governments in, in those kind of regions or is it, is it that's not even close to a good analogous comparison i think i'm not a strong enough historian of la- of u.s Ooh. policy in latin america okay. to to yeah to, no, to, 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 to yeah to definitively respond to that beyond just i mean look i mean uh i'll just say yeah states seek to influence other states because it's in their interest to do so a lot of the time sometimes it's not sometimes we build institutions that are more consensus building right uh because we see that as in our interests and i don't know what can you know what can you do that's the game we play that's the game of diplomacy which we will be playing soon um do you want another question? Another easy question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's get let's get some more quick fire. All right, this is another super simple one. Uh, can't Israel defend itself or take a larger role here? Uh, what do we keep them around for? <laughs> <laughs> All they're doing is hitting at Iranian yeah, targets. I feel like you've just taken a bunch of tweets or something and converted them into yeah. into, into questions. Yeah, no, that was a, that's a legitimate question. I mean. They're not doing like the, I, you know the the Lenny the, the, the anti defamation league algorithm has just hit our podcast <laughs> and I don't want to fuck with that. So <laughs> um, I I, th- I think that if I think I think that if I mean look for once again we're doing the chessboard thing right where we're talking about literally the destruction of an entire state. I think that the Israelis have always felt extremely vulnerable. That's driven every single decision they've made, and you know they've 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 answered that question or they they've sought to answer that question for you by making sure that their destruction is not an option and that they can defend themselves however they can. Um, I think they make in public the argument that they can't um, for the sake of getting support, which may be well-deserved because um, like fundamentally what they've, the, the argument that's always been made is, right, is that they are totally uh, disproportionately like outnumbered in the region. That's why they've always saw a technological edge. Yeah. Um, I think that you could make a compelling argument that Throughout the Syrian civil war, the Iranians have been able to use that instability to f- to arm Hezbollah to a much greater extent than it's been than it was armed previously, and I think that they have that Hezbollah has used the Syrian civil war um, while achieving its own objectives um, as a as 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 you know excellent training for the war mm-hmm. to come. So I think that the Israeli concern is deep. Um, and probably warranted, um, and 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 I think that many um, maybe people leaning a little bit more left in the United States are tempted to, and, and I I've been one of them, you know, throughout my life, to throughout my various aside. no, yeah, yeah, throughout my various thinking on on Israel and 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 you know what's next for the region vis a vis Israel. Um, I've uh, yeah I've had a tendency in the past to to underestimate both Israeli fear of of Iran. But also to under s- underestimate the actual threat that Iran poses to Israel. Mm. Um, I think it's quite quite great. Um, and even if you have the position that's like, well, when the Iranians say they want to wipe Israel off the map, they don't really mean it. You know, when it's your actual country, you can't necessarily afford to treat it as an empty threat. Totally. Um, so b- basically. Uh they're not. They're probably still more built for actual real self-defense than for like 
if you notice the last two questions, I, and this is what's truly problematic, I think, is not viewing Syria as a chessboard because Syria is carved up. A chessboard, all it is is a game arena that's carved up, and Syria is um, its people. Actually, apparently, the majority of those people live under government control, but yep. so they're not they're not necessarily like getting tugged at from every different direction. Oh, but um, I think that it's valid to call it a, a game arena. What is uh, to me, a dangerous perspective is what I've kind of um, hinted at in the, the last couple of minutes, which is basically, I want, I'm in favor of the extraction of the U.S., but I still want someone to do our dirty work, like a janitor, you know? Why can't it be Israel? That's a valid reason. Could it be Iran? No, we wouldn't. Th- you know, it would. it's always going to be an Iranian self-interested. Iran's going to always act in self-interest. Um, the assumption that someone needs to act in our power is something that's not, you know, the, the opposite of that is not really available to my American heuristic. Like, who's going to be us? It's like, hey, sometimes if you really, like, a pullout means that there is no you. You know, we don't have a say. Sure. And, I mean, I would ask, I mean, I'd be curious just based on all that, what what you think of the global coalition to defeat ISIS. Do you see it as, like, a coalition in, in, in name only? Um because look, I mean, if you have disproportionate wealth and ability, you probably need to disproportionately burden the efforts of a coalition. But you know that coalition is real, um, and we put a lot of very real work into into making an effective so entity. I, my last question, by the way, which mm-hmm. is is Turkey capable of handling an emerging ISIS without the U.S.? Um, no, I mean they. No, they, I mean like <laughs> See, the poorest, the poorest Turkish border was like. Yeah, like it may. I mean, <laughs> I don't know any of this for sure, but I'm sure you could find someone who would suggest that Turkey actively facilitated uh, uh, ISIS in Syria because they saw it as a check on the Syrian state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know any facts about that. Yeah, I don't know any facts about that. There's yeah. probably lots of valid theories that about the rise of uh, Daesh. Do you know what Daesh? Do you know what the etym- I don't know this. What the etymology of that is? Like why it's different in Arabic? Yeah, it's a it's a it's like an Arabic acronym oh. pronounced. Um, Acronym is when you, right? An acronym is when you say the letters. It's not when you. Sorry, like it's not. Oh, it's sorry, and and an, that's an initialism. Gotcha. But so 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 yeah, Daesh is an acronym okay. in Arabic for yeah, al Islamiya fil Iraq wa Sham. So Daesh. What uh, does that mean? Adola, the state, al Islamiya, Islamic, and Iraq and Syria. Oh shit. Okay. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, cool. that's cool. So I've learned a lot today. A yeah. that we gave iPads to, uh, <laughs> to, to oh people. Oh my god, that's crazy! Yeah, uh, let them be, choose targets. Uh, just to answer your question, I I secretly wonder, and I think that a lot of policymakers also secretly wonder whether ISIS was ever a real threat to us, whether it was an existential threat to us. I think the idea of being in the mode of the war on terror and wanting to whack a mole them there instead of whack a moleing them here, um, and the the probably flawed logic of interventionism. Um, the fact that we have a good language and grammar around uh, built up around fighting wars in Middle Eastern deserts um, and might as well use it. Uh, but, you know, one of the kind Sorry, of so you said you said you said existential threat, right? Yeah. I mean, I think very few things well, sure, pose even a, an even existential a threat, threat to us even a threat beyond to us, nuclear though. war. I mean, you know, w- so what, what price are you willing to pay? To save American lives in the United States, but what what American lives in the United States were under would have been if 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 the Islamic State had succeeded, they would have eventually become a vastly immoral country that would have had rational ends that which is most of who we do business with. 
So what threat did they pose to the United States? Would they have posed a threat to the United well, States? Well, I think there are a number of publicly well-known attacks that are, can be attributed to Islamic State efforts, right? I mean, maybe we're well, like rewriting a, history here a little bit, but like Americans have died on American yeah, soil but they, but in like attacks well, that well, were attributed it's, to it's the hard Bernardino and I like think well, it's hard to it's hard to Omar I think people I think that's where I yeah. agree with Hart. It's hard to account for those because th- I mean this is what we have to deal with in the era we live in, right? Where it's like anyone so. People can credibly or uncredibly claim these. So in San Bernardino or wherever, can cre- like a claim that is like, yes, they were sponsored, radicalized by Dish, ISIL, or whatever you want to call them. Um, but you, but then people also in their minds are like, were they? Were they not? Like it's, some people are like, yeah, for sure, they definitely were. Or otherwise, they're like, no. But, but and then there's people that spend YouTube three hours on YouTube, and they're like, oh, actually, they were activated like yeah. Manchurian candidates or something like that. You know, like. The but don't you think it would have been different? First of all, I am very happy. I, I think all those people should die. I'm I'm very happy that that specter has been defeated. I, you know, you're talking about ISIL. ISIL, yeah. Insert every bromide about how evil they are and how perverted a version of Islam it is. Um, but in terms of just crass realism, uh, I think that the threat—if the threat is supposed to be the Sarnaya brothers or something like these lone wolves that are activated in service to the caliphate—I think that if you have. First of all, good luck stopping that. You know, I mean, then also, you know, insert the entire stock argument about how you know white nationalism is something that's much more oppressing of a threat domestically, uh, especially when you involve like mass shootings. Um, so no, I, I don't think that there. I don't. Th- I don't. I I grant that there have been deaths um, that individual actors have perpetrated in the name of al Baghdadi, but if you give them a state, or if they if they earn a state in a in a in an absence of U.S. power. Um, I think that some of the like virality of the Islamic State would start to subside, and then you're just dealing with a state. Like, if someone is that into the um, holy war that the Islamic State represents, at some point they might commit terrorist attacks here. It's probably stochastic, you know, the same amount of. You know, I don't know that you can prevent that, but they'd also there's an option to migrate to the Islamic State. Like, I just think that the momentum would start to die down. And also, they're such bad political actors, they may know allies. I mean, the Islamic State didn't try to make allies with anyone. They were never really going to work, you know? Like, it was... It was it was it was an agent of chaos rather than of any kind of strategy. They said the same thing about Cuba, man. So, <laughs> yeah. well, so look, as as much in theory, Cuba had a, a huge ally. What are you talking about? As much yeah, in theory as we can make this argument that the statification of the Islamic State will necessarily turn it into a political actor, um, I think that policymakers in the United States and actually in eighty-eight countries around the world were right when they assess that the world cannot afford for there to be a terrorist, a fundamentally terrorist entity to become so large that it has the resources of virtually a state for achieving whatever evil it wants to achieve. It's too great a threat to all of the people of the world, so we have to do something about it. Um, now, uh, I just I, I feel like I, I don't want us to conflate like the mistakes we've made in terms of other interventions with this one. Um, I think the cost of the war against Islamic State uh, was was not, is not as prohibitive, and in terms of re- in terms of manpower and 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 quagmire, it's 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 not it's not as bad as our other wars, right? It's actually I think, well, I think when you think shorter, about it, first of all, it's quite successful. Yeah, I, I hope that's fair to say. I mean, like the war against is, yeah, I think I, th- I think it's fully justified. Actually. I think that's my I think that's my that was my point before about it. well, 
it's just it's in America, like people are like they watch Band of Brothers or something like that, and they're like they can easily track the scan of history and be like, "Yep, us good, them bad." But in this, which is like with the reality of being a st- modern, you know, empirical state in the 21st century and having to deal with a globalized society and all that stuff, it's like, okay, well, it's going to be completely different. We have to think about these things. And the difference being that in the 19th century, you know, Joe Blow didn't know what was going on in, in like suburban Paris, didn't know what was going on in Dien Bien Phu or wherever. Like they didn't have, like, it was only the educated class and people that like were the learned and read class that were able to like kind of think about the governance of their empire. But now it's just like the dude who's just like, you know, got a F Ford F one fifty and like, and like it's just a political statement. You know, when I was sixteen, like I really wanted a Ford F one fifty. I did too. Actually, top selling truck in America. I learned that every Sunday when I watched football. Yeah, um, exactly that and insurance. Well, and I wanted it there. Uh, just, they're not making cars anymore. Even they're only just making Ford F one fifties now. Yeah, but anyway, uh, but my point is that just like so you just have to answer to that now, and and people it's harder to make. Yeah, make like we have a podcast. We should we have, we don't know anything. Oh, in that Jaren, something in that Jaron Lanier po- book that I read though. He said podcasting is the most authentic form of social media and is the only good one. So, guys, we're on the right track. Part, well done. Thank yeah. you for being a part of our single legitimate form of expression. Thanks for having me. Um, Always a pleasure. Yeah, foreign policy kind of correspondent. Hard. By the way, I meant at the very beginning of the conversation to ask you why we resumed. You know, you had your little sabbatical. What brought you back to the mic? That's a good we're question. Gonna, we're going to just continue to do... We're like Jay-Z. Uh, we, yeah. we retired, but... We basically just retired from doing like weekly podcasts, but we're still going to do it when it feels appropriate. Like this is a pretty monumental thing that happened, uh, and we also have someone in you who's like very well equipped to talk about it. So we'll do it a couple times a year, but um, we're not on like a specific schedule anymore. Yeah, we met our goal. It's evolved into like Jay Z. We've evolved. We're no longer <laughs> dealing drugs, and, and we're actually leg- gone legit. Yeah. Hart, thank you for Thanks, joining Hart. us. Thanks for having me, guys.